Hey, hello, 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 everyone. Hello, Dr. Chris Martinson here. It's just you and me tonight. Um, we've got a solo live cast here, and so pleased to be here with you tonight. Um, this is uh, this one's called I Give Up. And uh, you know what I give up on? Uh, I'm giving up on the idea that uh, our leaders in charge are going to uh, get a clue and um, maybe navigate our way to a is, uh, better, easier called, uh, sort of an outcome. And, uh, you know so one second. On? Guys, I have a full echo. So, uh, so here we are um, at this stage, a very awkward stage of the game. And I was having a very interesting conversation with a good friend of mine just the other day. And uh, he was, uh, we'd been talking about resilience for a while. Remember I, I talk about, Hey, time to plant a garden, uh, do all of that. But this conversation, this, you know, this guy, gentleman had been talking with me about this for a long time. Now he's taken it seriously because there's something in the air. Maybe it's the fact that the markets are beginning to finally fall apart, but I have to say fall apart because what actually happened was, uh, the federal reserve poured trillions of dollars of liquidity into the markets and, um, they went up. And then uh, now they're in the business of pulling some of that back out and the markets are going to go down. Didn't mean it was real on the way up. Doesn't really mean it's real on the way down. But what is real is the things that are being done right now by our leaders that I can guarantee you have a destructive impact on all of our futures. So that's what the giving up is about. Of course, I'm here in the fight. I will be doing this fight for till I get until I'm till the technology doesn't work or I totally age out of this whole thing. But right now, what's really important is that we move things from private knowledge to common knowledge. Remember now, private knowledge is something that you and I might talk about or you could talk about with certain friends, but not everybody. Common knowledge is something that everybody knows that everybody knows. And then it becomes okay to talk about. And so right now we're in the business of watching all sorts of things move into common knowledge, but grudgingly so slow. It's really disappointing how slow some of these things are moving, especially considering just how really incredibly important they are and how much impact they have on people's lives. I thought things would move quicker uh, than they have so far. So, hey, thanks for being here. And let's take a look now. Um, I'm going to go into just, a, you know me, I like slides. We're going to take a look at a couple of slides here real quick. Um, and we'll go through them together. Now, this is all about us being here together. So as your comments come up, we're going to bring them in if they if it's um, something that's really germane and we can talk about it. So if you have questions, if you want me to expand on something, this is all about taking more time to go through concepts. You know, my regular updates, I use slides. I kind of go through a really packed, really dense. They, they go through a lot of content because I put a lot of thought into it. And now I want to spend just a little more time developing some of these core ideas. Now, a lot of you have asked me about this. This is the first thing we're going to start with today. It's about hepatitis in children. Had a lot of questions about this, so let's go there. This is just headlines from today. Um, just pulled this off. Parents warned to be alert to symptoms after child dies from hepatitis. That's uh, in Irish Times. That was in Ireland. 13 more cases of mysterious hepatitis in UK. Um, and the UK has had, I don't know, about 179 cases last I saw. So if they have 13 more, they're closing in on, I don't know, just under 200. Um, as well, uh, mass pediatrician on mystery uh, hepatitis outbreak, North Carolina. This actually started the United States and Alabama. So what is going on with this hepatitis in children? 
After we go through this, I'm going to take you through some things that you have to know about on the energy story. Those are tonight's topics, um, and the energy story is a really big one, too. This is really something. So for a while, I've been telling, you know, people ask, and I said, listen, I don't have enough data. I don't know what's going on. I still don't have great data. Now, what's going to happen with part two of this is I'm going to talk with Dr. Paul Merrick of the FLCCC, and there we, we best guess doctor to doctor, you know, scientist to doctor, what, what do we know and where did this possibly come from? Got some ideas um, and uh, I think those are probably going to be borne out. So this was uh, the UK Health Security Agency um, put out an alert and this was a, a while ago. Uh, and they say here they're worried about, uh, they're going to investigate, thank God, in cases of sudden onset hepatitis in children, mostly age 10 and under. So this is really impacting children, mostly under the age of five. So between the ages of two and five, really hitting them, hitting them hard. So this is hepatitis, hepa, liver, itis, inflammation, but the liver's being attacked in these children. And so um, they said here that they're up to total number of cases is 176 as of 10th of May. So 128 in England, 26 Scotland, 13 Wales, nine in Northern Ireland. So no children have died as of this, which was 10th of May, but now a child has died in Ireland from this. Of the children who don't die, there's an extraordinary number of liver transplants that are going on as a part of this condition. And this is a legit outbreak, and it's hit a number of countries. So we can see here uh, UK and pretty much all over the United States, but really clustered in some spots. So those are the sorts of things the CDC hey, that's what it's built for. It's supposed to get in there and investigate these things and figure them out. Um, by the way, they did have a clue that they put into the UK Health Security Agency down here. They say the investigation continues to suggest an association with adenovirus. Now, you've probably heard that term. Adenovirus has been in the news lately. Why? Well, because, um, well, you might have heard about the adenovirus vector vaccines, right? So the J&J &J and the AstraZeneca, as well as uh, Sinopec, which is the Chinese version, and Sputnik, the Russian version, those are all based on the adenovirus vector. Um, so suddenly, all of a sudden, we have an adenovirus uh, popping up here, and it's in the children, um, which is kind of weird because... Um, Adenovirus 41, and we don't know which adenovirus this is, but so so we we don't we don't have data yet. Uh, that's sort of a the dog that did not bark part of this story. We should absolutely have the type of adenovirus and the sequence data off of that. That should be out public. I can't find it. If it exists, help me out. I haven't been able to find it so far. It's just sort of vague references, not to any even type of adenovirus, but to just adenovirus, big family of viruses. But Normally, adenovirus 41 here, they say, often causes vomiting and diarrhea in children, which are a couple of the signs that you should look for, as well as jaundice in children. But it's not typical for the virus to cause hepatitis in otherwise healthy children. Um, so this is an oddity that this uh, adenovirus is suddenly causing a bit of a medical mystery that is causing 
any sort of hepatitis at all in what are, have been otherwise healthy children. As well, I've been reading reports that there isn't any associated COVID. Not a surprise because COVID doesn't really impact children of this age anyway. So um, these are otherwise healthy children who are just suddenly coming down with, in some cases, fatal, in some cases, uh, very serious cases of hepatitis. Uh, the CDC, hey, they issued an alert too. Uh, this is way back in April 21st. So so they said here, a cluster of children identified with hepatitis and adenovirus infection. So April 21st, well, it's May 12th. So there's been three weeks at least um, to figure out what the adenovirus is. This is all the information that actually exists on this from the CDC at this time. I think we should have more by now, but we don't. Um, and so they say down here, working with the Alabama Department of Public Health, where there was a first large cluster outbreak, um, they had a cluster of nine cases of hepatitis unknown origin in children ranging in age from one to six years old, all of whom were previously healthy. That's a big clue in this story all of whom were previously healthy. None of these children were at the hospital because of a current SARS-CoV-2 infection, and the first U.S. cases were identified in October of 2021 at a children's hospital in Alabama that admitted five children with significant liver injury, including some with acute liver failure without known cause, who also tested positive for adenovirus. So hep A, B, and C all ruled out. Um, and they went through records and found some more cases. So at any rate, um, this is very concerning. So obviously for the children involved, this is, this is terrible. If you end up uh, with acute liver failure, that's a lifelong, that can really be a lifelong condition depending on how bad it impacts your liver. If you get a liver transplant, that is a lifetime of immunosuppressive drugs to uh, maintain a relationship with that transplanted liver. And obviously for the children who die, it's uh, you know, the ultimate tragedy. So this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because these sorts of things don't normally just come out of nowhere. So we deserve answers, don't have those answers right now, um, and just speculation. So that's what I, you know, Paul, Merrick, and I, we're going to speculate about that um, often part two about this, because I don't think I can talk about that beyond this publicly at this stage. But you're smart. You can read between the lines, I think, of, of what, what's happening here. And um, I'm sure that in a few weeks when all this comes out, we'll be able to talk about it more directly. But I've learned it's easy to get punished in this business for being ahead of the official story. So that's that's just how that breaks out. Um Hey, Summer uh, Warhurst is writing, don't forget to hit that like button. Yes, please. If you if you hit like, tells the algorithm that people like this and then more people can see it. Um, so if you think more people should be in this conversation, uh, please hit the like button. Thank you much for doing that. Very easy to do. Um, so that's that's what we have on that at this point in time. So obviously, there really isn't any good way for a parent to prevent this from happening. Like I, you know, I... My, all of my kids are grown, but I remember when I had three young kids and they were around other children, I was pretty sure that their saliva was like half virus particles by weight for a whole period. I remember being sick all the time because that's what kids do. They, they, they interact with each other and their immune systems get challenged. And that's more, mostly a good thing. I don't know what we can do about this because we don't have good ideas about 
this adenovirus. We don't have its sequence. We don't know its R-naught or its transmissibility. We don't know its prevalence. We don't know anything about it at this point in time. Um, but at any rate, we're, we're going to have to track this because it's a bad sign. To have something like this pop out, it speaks to the idea that there's been some sort of a mutation event. And for whatever reason, we haven't learned what that mutation event is yet, which is weird because when Omicron hit, I remember it was uh, Thanksgiving, it was that Thursday in November um, 21. And when Omicron came along by Friday, I already had the sequence data for it and was already talking about how odd Omicron was from a genetic standpoint. It really isn't a direct lineage from the earlier variants, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. It had no relationship to them because it had so many genetic weirdities, particularly in the spike protein. But we had that data in 24 hours. I remember writing at the time at my website, I told people, this is an amazing time to be alive. Normally, you would wait a decade to get this kind of data. 24 hours later, we had all the sequence data. So this is something we do we do now uh, very quickly when we want to, um, is uh, find a, a virus and give us the sequence so we can tell some stuff about it. Um, at any rate, that's the, that's still a bit of a mystery, but I wanted to tell you what I did know about it. And so there's that adenovirus, um, as part of that. So, uh, switching gears slightly, um, you all, you all, you're all familiar with this one, right? Um, this is, uh, from the WEF, the World Economic Forum, the Davos crowd back in 2016, they put out a, a happy little, uh, little video. It's about, about two minutes long or so. And it had, it posited eight things that they could foresee in the future by 2030. This was their vision. They recorded this. I don't know when they recorded it, but they released this video in 2016. And they were saying by 2030, here's how we see the world. And so this is their vision of the world. And it began with number one, which you saw there on the screen, which was you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. I guess in 2022, we would update that to you'll eat nothing and you'll be hungry. I guess. I don't know. Just making making light of this. And this is what they said. Nice smiling guy there. Um, probably just a, a model of some kind who's probably more famous than they ever expected. They probably got 50 bucks for this photo in a shoot once upon a time. Just guessing. So uh, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. That's the one a lot of people focus on in this. And it's kind of a creepy, not kind of. It's a creepy sort of a prediction wish list kind of a thing to put right up front because, well, A, they don't know if you're going to be happy or not. How would they know? But B, you'll own nothing. Now, you'll own nothing. Well, if you own nothing, then I guess you're renting it. And that was step two of this thing. They said, oh, you'll just rent everything you need. Well, if you're renting, that means you're renting from somebody. So if you'll own nothing, who is going to own everything? Now, that was the part they obviously left out. And it's like the 800-pound gorilla arm wrestling with a pink elephant in the room. It's just it's a completely obvious thing to notice. Like, I'm not going to own anything? Well, then who is? Uh, who's the rentier class that's uh, renting all these things back to everybody? So obviously that's them. Right. They, they saw themselves in sort of that savior rental. Well, if somebody has to be the owner of these things, I, I guess that'll be us. You know, Federal Reserve and other central banks will print money. They'll hand it to us like BlackRock and we'll just buy all your homes from you and we'll rent them back to you and you'll be happy. So that was that was number one on the list. But number one, 
didn't really bother me that much compared to number eight on the list. So number eight on the list looks like this, and it says Western values by 2030 will have been tested to the breaking point. What does that mean? Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. What are Western values exactly? How would we contrast those with Eastern values or Southern values? I don't know which values they would contrast those with. To me, those are things like individuality, liberty, democracy, true democracy. You know, the one where actual people vote and votes actually count. And you can do that in a verifiable, not trusting, but verifiable way. Things like that. Those are cornerstones of Western values, including the idea that there's some objective truth that we all share in common because a Western value is about science and progress, technology and things like that. In order for those to work, there has to be some shared common understanding. Today, I think those values have been tested pretty sorely because I know scientists now who I can't even have conversations with because we don't share common data. We don't share common interpretations of common data. We don't share uh, any sort of uh, way of reasonably interpreting things. So, for example, I no longer trust any randomized controlled trials that are funded by, run by, and written by pharma companies. I just don't. Every time I look into one, it is a disappointing morass of, of... bad data, bad trial design, you know, rigged outcomes, all of that. So I just don't, it's just easier for me not to trust them. So that's my incoming bias is not to trust these studies. What about the doctors and scientists who come in whose bias is to trust them? You know, those are diametrically different sort of worldviews, but we don't share objective reality. We don't share objective truth anymore. So that's kind of a weird thing, not being able to share an objective truth with the world. So uh, those Western values include for me as well, the ones here that are going to get broken, tested the breaking point are, um, what about, what about the sacred bond between parent and child? Um, What about just simple shared common sense truths about, or what we call, what we call common sense understandings around the importance of family or the importance of, understanding certain biological things that people have understood for thousands of years about biology, about science, about truth. Those are all, those are all under assault right now. And so here's how I roll. So this is me. If somebody tells me they're going to do something and then it happens, I'm that guy. I kind of think maybe they did it. So when you look through this, the 2030 wish list of things that WEF would want to see. Yeah, included on there was you'll eat less meat, right? Things that are all now coming to pass. So, so every single one of their eight things that they were going to hope for by 2030 are now on the table. They're here, except for, except for you'll go to Mars. That was one of their things. It was like a little bun mutt out there. Oh, you, you, we could all go to Mars. Maybe, maybe you'll go to Mars. Uh, no, I won't. Uh, I probably won't be selected for that mission, given my age, given that there'll probably only be 20 people on that ship or whatever when, when it finally goes. So the odds are ever not in my favor or yours uh, or anybody's in that particular story. So besides that, though, Western values, not eating meat, um, 
that you're going to have to rent everything, that you'll own nothing. All of those predictions are now afoot. So again, somebody says they're going to do something and then it happens. Maybe they did it. That puts me in the weird crowd of people who think that way. Uh, maybe, maybe you join me in that. So um, at any rate, uh, that's what I saw coming up here. And so these Western values are really being tested pretty dramatically right now. And so I think we have to talk about uh, where this is all, where this is all headed and why I, I, I give, I give, I give up, I give up thinking that the WF crowd is going to think anything different than this way that I have to guess a little, they're exceptional and we're not we being the, 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 the hoi polloi, the, the little people in the story. The problem I have with this particular construct of theirs is that it's rooted in a hubris that basically has confused their wealth with some sort of superiority, be that intellectual superiority, moral superiority, genetic superiority, whatever their superior complex is around this. And yet... When I have the opportunity to interact with people of that particular level of wealth, I discover they're just people, <clears throat> just people. Egos, many of them are actually quite conflicted because they're, they actually are caught up in the idea that their identity is to their wealth. So if their wealth went away, who would they be? And so they have a fear that, that's parked right under that, which has a, a strong dose of superiority up on top of that fear to protect it. I noticed that many of them have not have been really disconnected from life and from building things, so they don't know how things work much anymore. And so a lot of the people in the so-called ruling class, not even just the billionaires at Davos, but I mean in the political class or the people who've come up through really good families and very wealthy families and went through elite educational systems and went to work for elite firms and consultancies and legal firms and all of that. Many of them have made it through that whole process being very successful, but they've done that without ever having cooked a meal, banged a nail, uh, run a PL, managed a, an actual production process. So the problem I have is that we're being managed by people who in many cases don't know how things work. And that's a problem. And that's starting to play out now in a really big way. So one of the other things I've given up on here is the idea that we're going to have any sort of savior that somebody's going to ride along and, you know, we'll elect the right person. and It'll all make sense all of a sudden again, because um, we're, it's, the system is too far gone for that. And I'm also starting to suspect that this isn't just simple ignorance slash incompetence, that it goes beyond that, that as they say, once is an accident, twice is coincidence, but three times is enemy action. We're starting to have too many examples of enemy action now for me to think anything other than uh, there are people out there who are intending to destroy the country. And that might be part of their plan for some reason. Hey, if we break this down, we can build it back better. We can build it up. Again, if somebody tells you they're going to do something, maybe you should listen to that. As Maya Angelou said, the poet, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them the first time. It's a really good life tip. It makes things a lot easier. So 
as we carry on here, I have to talk about why I'm so concerned at this point in time and why I've given up on a good outcome. I think we got harder times before we get back to the easier times. Now, my whole website, it was described, it, it's been named, it was named Peak Prosperity back in 2009. I wrote something back then and produced something called The Crash Course. It's both a book, it's a video series, and it's 28 chapters now after its update in 2014. It's going to get another update this year. And what it lays out is a systems level view that connects economy, energy, environment into one place because we have to see them all in one place now. You can't just squeeze on the energy balloon without, oops, something happening over here in the environment. And you can't just squeeze on the environment over here without something popping up in the economy. Whoops. And, and they're all connected. And so to understand how the plumbing between those three big systems is really critical if you want to know where the world is going and you want to have less anxiety because you know what's anxious making? Not knowing what's happening or the reason for it. Now, I might be wrong, but I'm not confused. I'm pretty sure I have an explanatory framework that at least gives us a starting point for having a reasonable adult conversation about why we're here at this moment in history and where we're going. And it's not a U.S. story versus China story. It's a human species story where humans are on this planet, 8 billion people, only so many resources. Listen, we can talk about it all we want. We should debate it. We should be talking about this. So this story is incredibly important. If you understand the story this way, I think you have a good chance of understanding where the puck is going to be, right? So why, why 2030? Why, why, why was the WEF? Why, is, uh, so, why are so many people in positions of senior leadership so concerned about where we should be in 2030? And why, did, why are they proposing radical overhauls to our culture, our values, our ownership models, those are big overhauls, right? Why, why all of a sudden? What's the urgency? What's the ticking clock in this story to them? Wander with me over to the big world of resources, and I think you'll see what the big ticking clock is. And so rather than my model for this is that this crew of people, rather than being honest with us all, and here's what honesty would sound like for this crew to me. They would say, listen, I know we've, we and all my buddies and I and my, my father, my grandfather, my mother, my grandmother, I know we've been in charge through this whole cycle. And I know we should have done something probably starting back around Earth Day in 1970 that, that would have set us on a different path. We didn't. Now things are going to be a little tough. But we want two things out of this uh, now that we've explained that to you. We, we would like to stay in power because, hey, that's what we would want. And uh, two... Um, we don't want to lose any of our privileges in this story. We'd like to maintain the same relative privilege structure that we've had up to this point in time. You're going to have to take cold showers and eat bugs. Are we cool? Right? That would be a version of honesty in this story. And so we don't have that. And, and so instead we get things like, you know, um, having to go into an extreme two-year set of lockdowns and increasingly crazy gyrations around a pandemic virus that has a 99.98% survival rate. Uh, we have to endure things like uh, salts on our basic truth-making apparatus and sense-making. And that's, that's what we get. So if you follow along, here, I'm going to give you just one piece of this today, which is the energy part of this story. Now, my, my PhD is in a biological science. I 
as biologist, what are you always studying in biology? Well, if looked at from one way, the study of biology is fundamentally always and everywhere about flows of energy, right? The sun cascades down, it comes into the chloroplast in the leaf tissue, and the photon comes down through, and the leaf captures that and turns carbon dioxide into sugar. It's a miracle, right? That is fundamentally the flow of energy. And then when a caterpillar comes along and eats that leaf, it's really eating what the sun came with, brought to the earth and was captured by the plant. And then the bird eats the caterpillar. So this is all just, all of nature is just that flow of energy from A to B. And, and, and when an organism has more energy available to it, it can grow into that energy source. And when it has less energy available to it, it's going to shrink into that energy availability. That's the whole dynamic of populations. Whether it's caribou on an island, whether it's rabbits in a field or an ecosystem, whether it's smelt in the ocean, little fish, whatever it is, everywhere and always the population is determined by the amount of energy available to it, which is its food for almost all, well, all organisms. Humans have figured out something clever though. We figured out how to take ancient sunlight in the form of coal, natural gas, and principally oil. That ancient sunlight is hundreds of millions of years of ancient sunlight all captured. And we've managed to figure out how to turn that into food. So when I eat food and it's there on my plate, I went down to a grocery store. We have Safeways here, big wise. You go to, go to the store and it's full of stuff. And you fill up your shopping cart and you bring it home and you eat it. But if you chase down, say, say I had a, a Ritz cracker on my plate, right? Just eating one Ritz cracker. Say there's 10 calories in that. When you chase down how many calories of energy were involved in making those 10 calories of, of cracker show up on my plate, you discover that there was typically around 100 calories of fossil fuels baked into that Ritz cracker. So that when I'm eating it, I'm only getting 10 calories, but I've actually consumed, as it were, 100 calories. This is upside down compared to all of human history up to about 1930, farming was a net positive energy exercise. Farmers would put a calorie of energy into the field, 10 would come out. That is now upside down and we call it normal. It's a little weird, historically unusual, and I would suggest it's a cul-de-sac, a little side thing that we've done for a while. It's a lot of fun, gave us a lot of prosperity, but we're now at the stage where this whole story that you and I and our parents and our grandparents grew up in is now shifting. And knowing the nature of that shift and knowing that it's not personal, but also it's being done in a fairly unmanaged way gives you extraordinary insight into where things are going to go. And more importantly, what you can do about that. Because information without action is merely interesting. I want to give you this information with the hopes that you'll be inspired to maybe see where things are going and, and take steps to become resilient in your life. And, and that's what we've done here, right? If, if we widened the camera out and, and went onto this property here, you'd see the gardens we're planting, the cows. We just got uh, three pigs were just delivered today by Aaron. Um, and uh, so we have three brand new little pigs running around and, and we're doing what we can to begin to have control over the most primal source of energy for any organism. And that's it's food. So that the whole conclusion of all this crazy sort of stuff and charts and everything, 
that I'm going to talk to you about results in me being very excited to have three new pigs on the property. So let me let me connect those connect those dots. And it begins here. OPEC. The, uh, everybody knows about OPEC. Um, so it turns out in the United States, uh, senators in, in their infinite having never produced anything and built nothing sort of wisdom have come along and they've decided that they're going to pass or hurry, continue to move along some legislation that's called the NOPEC relations. You see, they look clever names. <laughs> All right. So last week, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee approved the NOPEC bill, leading to pushback from both within and outside the U.S. OPEC's most influential energy ministers, pushing back themselves, warned the bill could send oil prices soaring by 200, maybe 300 percent. By the way, that's like game over for the economy. For a lot of jobs, that's like lights out, doesn't work anymore. Uh, here's what this uh, great article by uh, Svetana uh, in oilprice.com, great place I visit all the time, writing here, quote, if the U.S. passes the NOPEC bill, a bill designed to pave the way for lawsuits against OPEC members for market manipulation, the oil market could face even more chaos. <laughs> so, uh, Market manipulation. So they're accusing the OPEC members of coming together and deciding to set prices for their key products. So if you are Saudi Arabia or you're Kuwait, uh, United Arab Emirates, you have sand and you have some oil. And really, that's like it. And so the, the idea that they would come together to get the best prices they could for their one and only major product is not surprising. What is surprising is that the number one market manipulator out there is the United States in its defective SEC regulatory regime and the way Wall Street runs around things. So if you watch the markets carefully, you'll see manipulation happening in them all the time. Nobody says boo when it manipulates in a way that funnels money into the power structure of the U.S. and flows that up into, oh, say, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Nobody says anything about that. But the U.S., let's be clear, manipulates markets all the time. Commodity markets, silver, gold. Uh, the um, U.S. Federal Reserve is in the business of manipulating the price of money, interest rates, and probably a lot more because um, uh, they, they have their the New York Fed, which is the prime, prime uh, mover and shaker within the U.S. Federal Reserve system. The New York Fed has its, has its trading floor why, was, why does the Fed need a trading floor? It's located in Aurora, Illinois, where the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is, which is where they do all of the prime leveraged trading that moves markets all over the place. That's where futures and options are traded on stocks, bonds, commodities, things like that. And for some reason, the U.S. Federal Reserve is right there, located there. It's just one of those things. So at any rate, uh, the, the United States is going to spank OPEC for manipulating markets is probably not going to be all that well received by OPEC. Just a guess. Uh, and so we already know, what was it, a month and a half ago? Biden made a call, picks up the bat phone in the White House. They dial out for Mohammed bin, bin Salman uh, in the crown prince of Saudi Arabia saying he wanted to take a call. He's like, hey, Biden wanted to call him Mohammed and say, any chance you could pump more oil for us, that'd be that'd be swell. 
that call was not picked up or received. Another call was placed. It wasn't picked up or received. Nobody in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was interested in having that call. Maybe they were too busy. Nope. Turns out they had, uh, would then pick up uh, and called Putin and President Xi out of China. So the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is already busy forming its new alliances to align itself with this next future that's coming. This next 10 or 20 years is going to be all critical. A lot of amazing stuff's going to happen by 2030. Power centers are going to shift. And he who has the oil has the power in this story because everything else is a derivative of the energy you have available. So this NOPEC bill that I see them coming up with here, bad timing, kind of awkward, and it's it's just it's attempting to bully or push or otherwise force a different set of behaviors on a group of people who maybe aren't that interested in even picking up the phone call, let alone being bullied at this point in time. So law of unintended consequences. By the way, you can't call it unintended if you can predict what's going to happen next. I can predict that a NOPEC bill, which is going to levy and put civil and possibly even criminal sanctions on members of other sovereign nations because of actions that the United States doesn't like, opens the doorway for them to do that in kind in return. It opens the doorway for them to feel a little salty about the whole relationship. It opens the doorway for people to maybe say, oh, is that how you're going to be? We're just going to tear this contract up, right? Um, and we're going to go and find new trading partners. So that's what I see coming on with that NOPEC bill. So, um, by the way, whether or not we uh, go forward with that NOPEC bill, there's already severe damage happening to Russia's ability to produce oil. And so what do I mean by severe damage? Again, another great article here by Svetana here on May 9th. Uh, titled The Inevitable Decline of Russia's Oil Industry. This is big news. You need to know about this. You should be paying attention to this. This is bigger news than is given airwaves and bandwidth in Western press, but it really deserves to be talked about. Writing here, first bullet point is the European Union prepares to place an embargo on some sort of Russian oil imports. Russia will be unable to redirect most of that oil elsewhere. Pivoting to Asia will require massive infrastructure investments that would cause Russia's production and revenue to plunge, at least for a period of time. And in the meantime, a lack of storage in Russia would mean the country will have to reduce production. Here's the thing about oil. It comes flooding out of the ground under pressure if you're in a new reservoir, which uh, Russia has a lot like that. And when it comes flooding out, it's got to go somewhere. If you run out of places, physical places to put it, there's no more big tanks or tankers floating on the ocean. When you run out of places to put it, you then have to dial back. You turn the stopcock on that wellhead and you shut that field down. You don't just turn it on and off like a garden hose. I want more, I want less. It's very complicated. Reservoir hydrology and dynamics are very complicated. If you do it in the wrong way, you permanently damage the reservoir. So it has to be done very carefully. So there's a whole process to it because there's usually multiple wells, very complex 3D geology has been mapped out. And so if you can't get this oil, you can't put it anywhere. You got to you got to start shutting down that production. So when that production gets shut down, uh, here's what happens. So in yellow, continuing on here, Russia's oil production is already already falling. 
and will continue dropping in the coming months and years as Moscow will not be able to redirect to China and India all the volumes it's losing in the West. Force this the EU embargo will have forced Russia to reduce oil production and Russia simply doesn't have the storage. Now, here's why that matters. Let me get rid of this little thing right here. We don't need that blank headline. So um, if we look here, oh, I had the wrong thing. All right. So this is Russia's oil production f over time. And notice here that when they had this big peak back here, uh, they had a 13 million barrel per day production. And then the Soviet Union collapsed. And there was a lot of turmoil. And what happened was Russia's production fell pretty precipitously. So it went from this period here of really learning how to uh, pump this up and get a lot of things going and moving. And then all of a sudden it fell off again. So, oops, I got the wrong one. Yeah, this one. So you see that, that big upswing right there. And then they hit this peak of production, sort of got it back. They fell down here. Now, here's the thing to notice. They haven't gotten back. after Decade after decade after decade, Russia is not back to its former peak. It'll never get back to that former peak. In fact, last year, Russia was telling everybody that even without these sanctions, before any of this sanction stuff came up, they were already telling the world, hey, we've kind of hit a peak of production here. So this probably was the peak right about here, and it was going to tail off slowly, but now we're about to see another drop-off. And again... The idea is the drop-off will be fairly steep, but getting back is going to be a long, slow affair, and it may never get back to where it was in the first place. So that's a big deal. The, the world doesn't have spare capacity right now. There's no extra fields out there. The whole oil industry has failed fundamentally, not failed, but it couldn't or didn't or failed to, depending on how you look at it, invest in new production, deep water, ultra deep water, you name it. Uh, it's just not there. Now, we could bring it on slowly and maybe they'll open up the Arctic or the coasts or maybe Africa will find some more. But those projects are several years in the future. Even if today a huge field was discovered, a big one, many billions of barrels, ginormous, a huge elephant field was discovered, say, off the shore of the United States or maybe in some other part of the world, it would still be five years minimum before that was flowing at a reasonable output. It just takes time. You have to put a lot of wells in. You have to attach a bunch of infrastructure. It's going to require some processing. You have to build pipelines. A lot of things have to happen. So if Russia's oil gets taken out of the game now, and it is being taken out of the game right now, there's there's no there's no thing left to make up that difference. There's no place we can point to. Uh, U.S. shale isn't going to be the the swing fill on this for a lot of reasons. It's all very complicated. So what does all this mean? What does this mean? Well, first up, you know, let's just imagine that that the stuff that Russia is a at peak. B, it's about to hit a, a production decline because C, it has nowhere to put that oil right now. So D, it's going to have a permanently or at least a multi-year suppressed oil output. So the world isn't going to have the oil it needs. Now, this is something I covered extensively in this thing called the Crash Course. Here's the link to it down there. It's all free. Just click on it. Do you want to know about how... It takes three big parts. It talks about money, money creation, the economy. It talks about energy, energy economics, things like that. We're going to talk about a little piece of that today. Then it talks about the environment. Uh, and then, you know, what should you do? And what does this all add up to? 
So today we're just going to be looking at some stuff that's found in chapter 19. And here's some basic ideas. This is one of the most important charts I have. If you, if you, had, if you were only granted one chart to understand all of economics as best you could, for me, it'd be this chart. So on that left axis, what we're looking at there is the primary energy consumed by the world. So this is primary energy, not batteries or stored energy, primary energy. What is that? Hydropower, nuclear power, natural gas, coal, oil, all put into some sort of systems that utilize that energy. Maybe they're burned in combustion engines. Maybe they're burned to make electricity in power plants, whatever it is. Primary energy, which I'll show you a chart of what that looks like on the left or y-axis against the x-axis down here at the bottom, which is the real GDP of the world in trillions. Look how tight this is. Look at, look at this. Look at this. This is just a very straight line. It basically says if you want more units of this down here, if you want more units of economy, you're going to, by definition, be consuming a fairly linear relationship, more units of energy. Energy is the economy. There's, if you took the energy away, the economy would go away. Same thing as if I said, if we took the rabbits away, the fox population goes away. And if you take my food away, eventually I go away too. Um, so it's just this, it's a very simple thing to understand. And of course you can see it whenever you look out into the world and you see all the cars and trains and ships and buses and planes going by, that's all economic activity. Or uh, you could look around the room you're in right now and try to find one thing you can look at that isn't there courtesy of oil directly or in the case of me as I eat oil or you because we eat oil literally as it were uh, in this story. Everything in your life is there because of the master resource, which is this stuff called oil. It's fairly easy to understand. And once you put that on, that's your energy goggles. Once you put those on, You'll get it. You'll, you'll start to see it that way. Like, like I'm that guy. Like when I get on an airplane, it has one to three million different components, right? Depending on the make of the airplane. They all have to work. Like if one little sensor's out, plane doesn't take off, right? They all work. And then you go from zero to a few hundred miles an hour just within a single runway and it take off. And it's just, mm, it's magic, right? So, that amount of energy flowing through our economy allows it to do what it does. If, but let me be clear about this. If you take the energy away, the economy goes away. The unfortunate part is I can't tell you which part because the economy is what's called a complex system. Complex systems have emergent behaviors. They, they don't have predictable behaviors. And as clever as we've become, as powerful as AI and as powerful as computers have become, we still lack the fundamental ability to predict complex systems. Um, it's just the nature of it. So we can't predict what's going to happen. And by the way, human and, and society and culture is a complex system. So the culture could make decisions, right? So when Easter Island, as the story goes, was busy collapsing, right? They burned up all of their resources to continue to produce giant stone heads that faced out to the ocean. That was what they considered to be important. Whether that's true or not, apocryphal, we don't really know, but I just want the metaphor to ask the question, how we're going to manage the energy descent is in some ways a cultural question. And I don't know what our version of Stoneheads is here in this culture. Like, what's that thing that we will 
preserve at all cost. Like, we'll write down to the last tree so we can erect that last stone head. That's what we'll do. What will that be for us? Like, so we could decide, right, to subsidize war. We could say, yeah, you know what? We like war. Let's subsidize war. That might be the thing we decide makes the most sense. Obviously, it makes the most sense to some people in my country. Like, let's just subsidize war. That's literally their top priority. Nothing else is a higher priority, right? We might decide to subsidize cheap coast-to-coast flights because those are really important, right? But as we do that, increasingly, as energy comes into short supply, we're going to be promoting one aspect of things while stealing from some other aspect. It's a net, it's a net zero game with losses now. So if we advance one thing, by definition, we lose from somewhere else. We can't have it all anymore. It's not that world. We don't get to have this and one of those, like George W. Bush. Uh, I'll have a war and a tax cut, please, right? We don't get to do that anymore. We're now at the painful trade-off stage, but we have unserious leaders who haven't ever been out in the real world, apparently, who don't understand what a trade-off might be. So getting back to this. Just meditate on this, right? Put this up on the wall, cross your legs, start saying OM, right? Energy is the economy. And if this vaunted, what they call energy decoupling was happening, you would see this line depart and go flat like that. But we don't see that because we don't have any energy decoupling. You know why? Because this is a global chart. So the United States has a little bit more economy per unit of energy compared to a few decades ago because... We outsourced all the energy expensive stuff to China. They do it for us. And then we import it and say, oh, look, we're getting more efficient. No, we're not. There's no efficiency on this chart. This chart is dead straight, even Steven, through every decade it's been running, which says there's a straight line. More economy is going to burn more energy. That's a powerful statement. So um, let me hold on there. Uh Ryan, are there any any comments or anything that that relate to this that we should turn to before I plow on? Yeah, yeah, Joe. Yeah, Joe Potter says print more oil. Yeah, that's the one thing the well, it's one of many things the Fed can't do. But yeah, they're gonna try though. They're gonna try. Um, yeah, and I think they already are to some extent in the sense that Joe, I think they 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 support the idea that if we can just control the narrative a little bit and print some oil futures and sell those into the market. Maybe that will fix things. Um, but definitely, uh, no, Fed cannot manage that. Um, so let's see, what else we got down there? SDRC92126 says, Alaska has 400 years oil at current rates. I'm not sure. I'd have to look into that. Last I heard, the Trans-Alaska pipeline was in danger of having to shut down because it needs a certain volume of oil to flow through. So the known and tapped fields in Alaska are almost not up to the task of maintaining the existing oil pipeline up there as it is. They can't fill it enough to, to make it operate, especially through the winter. Um so if there's more oil to be found up there, that'd be great. But again, it's going to take, or even if they know the oil is there, it'll still take time to get to it and to begin to pull it out. But certainly Alaska does not have 400 years of oil consumption for the world at this stage. Not a chance in, in uh, you know what. Um, because uh, right now the world is consuming about, let's call it 75 million barrels of crude a day. 
we, we, they throw other junk in there and they call it all liquids. They call it 100 million barrels a day. But about 75 million um, barrels per day is what the world is consuming right now. So um, uh, 400 years would be a lot. Uh, and I don't, that doesn't exist. So, all right. <clears throat> Just to drive this point home then, uh, this is a snapshot. So this is just looking at in 2017 as just graphing two things against each other. On the left axis, going up in the y-axis, uh, 2017 GDP. How much GDP did you have as a country? Every dot's a country. Along the x-axis, on the bottom, is a log scale of how much oil was consumed by that country. So this is log GDP going this way, and this is log of oil consumption going this way. And oh, there's another straight line, a very nice tight relationship. And so basically it says all the countries out here who are busy consuming more oil have larger economies because oil or energy is the economy. If you want to have more economy, by definition, you're going to be burning more energy. The problem is we don't have more energy at this point in time. We're hitting it's bumpy plateau of a peak right now. This is what's coming between here, between 2020 and 2030. That's what's coming. Now, do you think the WEF didn't have access to this data? Of course they did. There are a lot of very serious people who have had access to this data. So the question is, if you know that you have an economy and a financial system that are constantly growing or the opposite, collapsing, right? That that's that's our financial system. It's either expanding or collapsing. Like it doesn't really have a steady state. Like, can you imagine, like that steady state where you know General Motors does what it does, and you know Facebook does what it does, and in ten years you look at them and they're still at the same level. They're steady state, right? They have the same amount of earnings. They're not growing. All that. Th that world. We we don't have a financial system that rewards that. We have a financial system that kind of has, it's like a shark, has to keep swimming or dies, right? One of those sharks. So our financial system is either expanding or it's very unhappy and it's busy collapsing. That's why people are so scared of these stock drawdowns and deflationary impulses and seeing things like um, all the financial asset classes get hit because the worry is that they are going to implode completely. Uh, so if you think like me that having a financial system driven by a system of money that's either expanding or collapsing is a bad idea, then we're in agreement. I think there are other money systems out there that we could get to, sidebar. But for now, it's pretty clear that if we go back to this slide, energy is the economy, period. It's a really important point. It's obfuscated and obscured in our press all the time. I don't know why. It couldn't be simpler. Look at that. That's a straight line. Here's where the problem comes in. So I can hear you already like, Chris, why is that a problem? It's a problem because this is, remember I talked about primary energy by source. What is the source? We That first graph was in that source of energy. So here it is. This is it. This is looking at it from 1800 way over here on the left on the x-axis on up through 2019. And it starts with traditional biomass down here. So what's that? Well, that's peat wood, dung, things like that, right? Traditional biomass. And then we have coal, oil, natural gas here in the purple. And then on top of that, little smears up here. So nu nuclear and hydro are not smears. They're actually pretty substantial, those two. 
Um, and then those last three things are modern biofuels is this next one here in this lighter screen. And then other and renewables up there, you can barely resolve them. So whenever you read an article, and I read them all the time, it's like solar and wind supplied 100% of Costa Rica's electricity. That's true for Costa Rica with its awesome geology and geography, which permit things like uh, geo geothermal and, and uh, 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 hydropower and things like that. But for the rest of the world, this look at this. Look at this. That's 80% that's of our consumption right there are those three things gas, oil, coal. And that's part one. Part two is notice even here that this whole line right here, which is like this exponentially increasing line right here, that is the line that we all grew up on. To us, it, it, that steep upward sloping line of always more energy is our flat terrain. We've grown up on it. We're like, that's how the world works. We always have more energy and that's just how it's going to be. And that's not how it's going to be. We're, we, you happen to be alive at this really incredible moment in history when, well, this is about to change and it is changing. It was earth shattering to me that in 2018, China came out and said, we're at peak oil over here. And since then, they've been on an absolute tear importing. They are by far the number one oil importer. The United States, right around the same time, was busy convincing itself that it was Saudi America and that it was even talking about, oh, we're going to be an oil export nation again. And we were convincing ourselves with what turned out to be, which I pointed out at the time, these were ridiculous fantasies. The shale oil wasn't some permanent bequeathment that we could turn on and was going to flood the world with all this oil forever. It was like a little flash in the pan retirement party. It was 10 beautiful years of resource, maybe 15, 20 if we managed it well, that we could have used for any purposes we wanted. And we should have. That would have been a great time. Take that last oil and gas out of the ground. And do something awesome with it. Build those green livable cities you really always wanted. Make sure that your soils are healthy. Put in the high-speed infrastructure and rail system. Reinvigorate our barge system so that we can move things very efficiently from A to B. That's what we should have done with that, right? Instead, we threw it into the project, such as it is, of growing our economy because that's what's important uh, is to grow the economy. I think we could have both grown the economy in legit ways and made reasonable investments in our future. Like I said, it didn't have to be this way. But we made bad decisions. Um, and so looking at this chart again here, this has a lot of really critical information baked in. And if you understand this chart, you will understand where the future is going. You will understand decisions that you might want to consider making today that will help put your family and yourself in a better position for tomorrow. What this says is that all of this economic growth that we saw before here, so whether we're taking a snapshot, which is like this for 2017, or we're looking over time, all of that growth in the economy going from, say, $27 trillion of real GDP back there all the way up to $75 trillion, that all happened because this was happening. Now, the question everybody should have at the tip of their tongues is, well, what happens if that doesn't happen anymore? And what happens worse if we have that is the rationale for a money system that's either expanding or very unhappily collapsing. That's the difficulty we're in. That's the predicament we're currently in. It's why I believe you're hearing about things like central bank digital currencies, about uh, all these efforts to get us under digital ID and passport control is because other smart people are seeing this and they know, oh, this is going to be a heck of a management problem. 
they have a choice. Do we tell people about this and be honest and trust in the good nature of good people? Well, no, let's lie. I have to lie because I think the thinking goes that they don't trust themselves, so they don't trust you. That's the difference. I mean, I, I trust you. I'm going to give you this information. I'm going to trust that you're going to do the right stuff with it. They don't trust you. They don't trust me. You can tell, right? That's why they lie all the time and they hide and they never seem to tell the truth about anything. It's because it's they fundamentally think that if they told you the truth that you'd freak out. You might. Um, and, and that their little party would end, I guess. I don't know. Or they just don't trust people. And it's a projection of their own inner weaknesses upon the rest of the world. Uh, whatever the psychology is, I know that, that they know about this. And I know, for instance, when I've done work and... Uh, had opportunities to interact with people who are very highly placed within the Chinese system, they got this. Like, this was five, six years ago. I was talking about this with them, and they were looking at me like I was a dummy. They're like, yeah, we know that. Yeah, we know that. Right? We don't talk about this much in, in the United States, and I think much of Europe, and it's going to really bite us. China is busy orienting itself as if this chart is true, as if they know that the future belongs to those who have access to the resources. You know that whole bird in the hand, right? China gets it, and that's why they're building the Belt and Road Initiative all across Asia. That's why when the United States beat a retreat from Afghanistan, leaving all that tasty hardware behind, military hardware, China now got a number of amazing things out of that deal. Access to some of the last best known mineral deposits in the world, because Afghanistan had not been in a position to prosecute those from a corporate standpoint for the past 20 years, because They'd been occupied. Now China sails in with its magic checkbook, and they've got access to the most beautiful known ore deposit for copper left that I'm aware of in the world, other valuable minerals, and a landline to Tajikistan where there's you know major gas reserves and all that. So, so China's already operating as if that story I'm telling you about where we are in this energy story is real, and they get it, and they're not confused by it. And so I'm confused why were confused by it, why, why my country seems to, you know, be, be stuck on that. So at any rate, this chart again explains a lot. And the other thing you could draw from this is to notice there's a couple of subtleties in here that are really important. Notice here that, well, maybe about 1840 or something, that's where coal really starts to come online. But it's a, even though it's a superior fuel to biomass, I mean, totally superior, right? You, you can run a steam engine, on coal because of its energy density. Very hard to run a steam engine or its equivalent on dung or peat. Like these are really low energy, low energy density fuels. Even though coal is vastly superior, notice it didn't take over right away, right? How long did it take before it was half the mix? I don't know. Looks like it's about even Steven, so it's 50-50 with biomass maybe here. Maybe 50, 60 years. Takes a long time to get to half the energy mix. <clears throat> and then oil comes along. And oil is way better than coal, right? You can actually, it's much more energy dense. You can run internal combustion engines on it. It's awesome. So again, uh, oil really shows up in this chart around, around turn of the last century down there at 1900. Again, where is it, how far out do we have to go before it's say a third of the mix? You gotta go way out here somewhere. Call it 1960, 70. Um, and same thing, you know, gas comes online and it's pretty awesome for what it does. And it just takes decades for a new energy source to become a significant portion of that overall mix. 
Is that subtlety? Why is that important? Because you read all this stuff like, oh, we're just going to switch to electric cars, right? As if it's just like, oh, we thought it, now it's done. That's not how it works. It takes decades. It takes a lot of capital. It takes real prioritization. And humans, here's the final subtlety off this chart. When we went from biomass to coal and from coal to oil and from oil to nuclear, right? When we did those various things, we were always moving from a worse, more diffuse, more dilute energy source to a more concentrated, more useful form of energy. The concentration was always this way. Now we say, oh, you know what? We'll just do solar now. That's going backwards in that story. As wonderful as it might be, not saying don't do it, but let's be honest. It is a more diffuse source of energy where, you know, you could get a, a pipe this big coming out of a gas well that's going to be delivering, you know, terawatts of power over its lifetime. You know, a solar panel, you know, the size of, you know, four by six or something is still going to deliver a few hundred watts of power, um, you know, on a daily basis. So at any rate, the concentrate, not that we can't do it, but don't underestimate how hard it's going to be. It's not one of those things we just sort of like think it and it happens, right? It's not, it's not a, it's not a willpower issue. It's a capital issue and it's a energy um, sufficiency and density issue. So going back, where's all this go? Um, by the way, Many in the world still want that good life that the United States have. I, this really shocked me when I came across this. This is energy use per person in Africa versus, in black, a typical American refrigerator. So the per person yearly energy consumption um, of somebody in Ghana, Senegal, Kenya, Nigeria, Tanzania, or Ethiopia, way over there on the left, is uh, less and sometimes far less than a, just a, a refrigerator. Refrigerator makes my life awesome. I love having non-spoiled food cold all the time. Uh, it's an amazing thing. But um, a lot of the world does not yet have that benefit. And they'd like to have that benefit. And I don't blame them. Um, so the competition for the remaining resources of this world obviously is, is going to be there. And there are those countries out there that are positioning themselves for that future right now. And then there are other countries that are not doing that. Um, and mine and much of Europe would be actually in that particular mix. All right. Anything else uh, pulled up right now? What do we got? I am a fantastic. A fantastic. Uh, isn't the correct approach to an energy problem to encourage higher prices and let the free market sort it out? If cheap energy is about to run out, then right now the market should be pricing it accordingly but it's not. Yeah, absolutely. I totally believe in free markets. Absolutely 100% in this story. Free markets would sort this it would sort itself out over time, but one of the things that free markets would absolutely do is it would they would begin to figure out this issue that I'm talking about right now. And uh, if that happened, if if the markets really figured out what energy was actually worth and how important it was to its future, uh, the free markets would would be pricing it fairly differently. Now, here's the thing. In the United States, we saw oil we saw oil prices as well as gasoline prices start to rise. And so the Biden administration said, well, we can't have that. What are we going to do? Oh, let's take this strategic petroleum reserve and we'll start pushing it into the market, million barrels a day. And so that's kind of like um, uh, tapping into your trust fund balance because you're down at the craps table at, currently at, in Vegas or something. I mean, it's just a 
bad idea to use your strategic petroleum reserve. It isn't our convenience petroleum reserve. It's our strategic petroleum reserve. That, that's being used to help drive the prices of oil down right now, presumably for political reasons, right? Um, which are the worst sorts of reasons to do anything when it comes to energy like that. So yeah, I think that um, energy's prices really do need to sort themselves out. All right, we got one more comment here. Let's get there. Oh, contraire, doctor, truth is the savior we need, and men like you are delivering it respectfully. The prophet, 456T123G. Well, thank you. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I have the truth, but I certainly smell the BS. Um, and I can tell you that that this lack, complete lack of focus on the reality, the basic realities of the energy story, is it's not an accidental oversight. It's one of those things where it's just this glaring omission. You're like, how are we not talking about this? You know, it's like one of the most important things would be like a farmer not talking about their soil health. You know, it'd just be like, it's a little weird, you know, so sour note in that particular story. So um, thank you for that. But uh, trying to find the truth, but mostly just, you know, bumping along the, the older I get, the less I know for sure. <sighs> it's absolutely the case. But this stuff, this data I have is very robust around the energy story. And so where we, when we look where we really are in the oil story, it's not just the amounts of it, though. So the quantity, that's what everybody's focused on. Well, we have 75 million barrels. What if we had 80 million barrels next year? This would all solve itself, right? And then 85 million barrels. And the answer is maybe, but maybe not. And the reason why not is actually the heart of this particular story that I want to tell you. And it has to do with something that's not obvious. It's not hard to explain. I think it ought to have been explained everywhere. It should be literally part of every engineering course. Anybody who's a civil planner, anybody who's into politics, anybody who has, thinks they have any right at all to tell other people what to do <clears throat> through some regulatory aspect or some, some such, really ought to know this next piece of data. Um, and this goes by the... on and this goes by the wonderful acronym eroy that's energy returned on energy invested eroy um and it works like this so this again comes from the crash course so let me break this chart down for you um what we're measuring here is a simple ratio we're saying hey look it takes energy to find energy and bring it to market right so let's imagine i'm a potato farmer and i have to use one calorie of my personal effort to hoe over a field, put a potato in a, in a hill, wait for it to grow, harvest it back out, bring it to market. Let's imagine for every uh, 10 calories of potatoes that I bring to market, it costs me one calorie of personal effort, right? So that means that the energy return on energy invested is 10 out for one in. So on this chart, that would be way over here on this little 10 right here. So that that's what that's signifying. Now, once upon a time, Way back in 1930, when we were, or so, when we were first discovering big oil fields, spindle top and all those big gushers that you see in the old movies with, you know, just a little drill rig where you can actually see the human next to it. You know, that's how big they were. And we would uh, invest a barrel of oil of energy equivalent into that process and we'd get 100, 100 back, right? 100. So imagine now that, that time passes and, and, now we're only getting 50 barrels back. So takes one, but you get 50 back. So now 
one divided by 50 is uh, gives us a 98% return. So that's what's showing up here, 98%. All of this green down here, because we have that beautiful, tasty 50 to 1 return or 98% return, is the surplus energy that's available to society. When your society has a surplus energy, it can do whatever it wants. It can build stone statues, it can fly planes, it can drive 6,000-pound cars to soccer practice, whatever it wants to do. That's it. But let's be clear, the red part is what the energy business needs to keep itself going. And the green part is what the rest of us who aren't in the energy business use to cycle and empower our lives. Well, by 1970, that had fallen to 25 to 1 on average. Um, you know, different oil plays obviously have different um, values that they return. But this is on average. Notice something, though. Notice that the amount of green surplus energy available to society under the 25 to 1 is not all that different from the 50 to 1. It's a lot of green under there. And then even at the 18 to 1 of the 1990s, or even when you get to 10 to 1, which is about where we were in 2000, there is a lot of green under here. That's amazing. What I want you to take away from this, though, is this is not a linear chart. It doesn't go from 100 to 1 to 50 to 25 to 10. We climb down. It goes along, and then it collapses all of a sudden. This is called the energy cliff, where the energy invested has to suddenly become a very significant part of the overall energy story. Now, this gets critical because this crosses at 1. This doesn't cross at 0. It crosses at 1 because when it takes one barrel of energy to get one barrel of energy or one unit of energy to get one unit of energy, the return is zero. There's nothing left over here for society, you and me, to live on. So today, oil fines are probably somewhere in that maybe 5 to 1 to, to 3.8 to 1, uh, tar sands, like stuff up in Canada um, under old practices. I think they've improved that a little bit, so we could bump that one up. Oil shale, which is not... Sh um, some of the returns there are not not stupendous, uh, but we're down. We're somewhere down on this this cliff now. So, um, yeah, Tony, we are going over the energy cliff right now. Here's how I connect these dots. Back here in 1970, you know what was possible in 1970? You could have one person earning one paycheck, and you could support the whole family. Today, not as easy, right? often takes two people earning paychecks to just barely make ends meet out here today. So that makes sense when you understand it from an energy standpoint, because there's just less surplus to go around. It just is going to take more effort. And as we go down that energy cliff, things get harder. So that's the prediction I have. We're going to see everything. The way we measure that's going to be a little complicated. We'll measure it in rising prices. So as energy becomes more dear, more expensive, uh, more in short supply in the story, we're going to find things get more expensive. Plane flights, food, da, 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 da. those things all become a lot more expensive over time. So this is actually one of the most important charts to understand, is to understand this energy out to energy in. This comes from a lot of the best work on this has been done by a guy named Charles Hall, uh, and he's a professor. I think he's retired now, Professor Emeritus. And, and so he's, he, he does awesome work on this, and his graduate students have done some phenomenal work on this. Dave Murphy's done incredible stuff. I should have him back on. Uh, but this chart, once you understand this, this tells you where we are. So it's not just the quantity of oil we're getting out of the ground. 75 million barrels, 80 million barrels, 100 million. What is it? It's the quality. So let me be clear. 
50 million barrels at 100 to 1 would be worth a lot more than a million barrels a day, you know, coming a million billion barrels coming out at one to one. Those actually don't, those are useless. So this is where we are in the story. This is just a simple story. It's the story of an organism that goes out and eats all the easy stuff first and then goes after the harder stuff, right? You don't chase the fastest antelope if you're a wolf pack. You, you kind of go after the slower one first. We've been after all the all the fat, easy fields. You talk to anybody in the oil business and they will give you the same story. There's no confusion on their part. They're like, yeah, the stuff's getting harder to find. It's deeper. It's smaller. You know, da, 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 right? And that's basically the story of where we are in this particular moment in time. And it's a really important story. It tells you a lot about where we're going in the future. It says the economy is going to not only be harder, but euphemistically, it's going to get skinnier. It's going to get smaller. There things are going to get sort of pair off of that economic tree for a while as we adjust to the new reality of how much energy we have. And by the way, it's going to take huge adjustments. And by the way, I don't see anybody in power doing anything reasonable about that. Not in the West. In fact, we're busy shooting ourselves in the foot about this uh, at this point in time. How about this? Javier Blas, uh, one of my favorite energy uh, writers over there and, and followers on Twitter, writes, uh, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says Democrats will next week present a bill on gasoline price gouging. They're going to they're going to legislate it away. The bill will enable the president to issue emergency declaration, making it illegal to increase the price of gasoline. Price gouging needs to be stopped. OK, uh, I where do I go with this one? Oh, this one's hard. So, first off, Nancy Pelosi was is old enough to have been around when Richard Nixon tried price controls. Price controls are the ultimate opposite of free markets. It's like, oh, we'll just legislate what the right prices should be because that'll work. These are people. These are unserious people. That's an unserious suggestion. It's going to have a lot of serious supporters who are going to believe in it, and they probably have a pretty good chance of getting a pass. Because who wouldn't want to pass a law in an election year? forbidding the price gouging. Uh, and so so probably I think it has a decent chance of passing, but it's one of the dumbest things I've heard. Where do I even start? So the reason that prices go up as fast as they do is because of a very complicated set of reasons that begins at an oil well, goes through a refinery, comes through middle distributors, goes through all sorts of pipelines and other end stage distributors and into a retail gas station. Who are you going to tell has to lower their price in that story? Just the guy at the end? Or the gal at the end? Okay. If you do that and they no longer can afford it from this point in here and they lose money at it, they're not going to do it. So they'll stop doing it. So demand will go down because they won't be ordering anymore. And that's called the Venezuela story, right? Venezuela prices are, yeah, look at all the, look how, high, look how fat the prices are. The price of, of a loaf of bread is now an armload of paper currency in Venezuela. They should have lots of bread. They have almost no bread. It's really not hard to understand. It's how the world works. Nancy and people who are supporting this bill don't get that. So here's what they're going to do. They will temporarily ding the price of gasoline at the expense of future supplies. And when future supplies are even less than current supplies, the price will either have to skyrocket even higher or will face the ultimate in demand destruction because the economy is now starved, literally, for the fuel that it wants but no longer has because somebody put price controls on it and killed the supply chain. Well, maybe they're smarter than that. Maybe they know that they don't target the gasoline station. They have to target the middle distributor. Maybe, but then same story. 
Do you target the refinery? Where, where do you put that? Where do you put that uh, particular price gouging moment um, in that story? Very, very hard to do. People have tried it throughout history. I'm not aware of it really ever working. So that it's even being proposed again just shows the level of economic ignorance that we are now laboring under, and it's extraordinary. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't even know where to go with that. So one, one thing I would suggest, though, to Nancy is maybe she should start in California. If you want to find the highest diesel and gasoline prices in the U.S., they belong to California, which I do believe... Uh, would be Nancy Pelosi's home state. So so it would be a, an important thing um, if she wanted to start somewhere, uh, maybe to find out what's going on in her own state is a first place. And then pro tip, why don't you try some of those gas price controls there in your home state, see how that works out there first. A little test bed. Just give that a little little, little test, test bed. See what happens. Um, all right. And if you have any other comments that you, you want to bring up, just bring them up and um, I'll hit them. Oh, Chris, you know anything about thorium? Well, no, I've, I've except I've, I've interviewed Kirk Sorensen a couple times and he is one of the top proponents in the United States for bringing thorium of, uh, along. Thorium, for those who don't know, is an element. It's on the periodic table and it has uh, a, a the ability to create a very, very tasty, interesting nuclear reaction to generate heat. You can use that heat to turn a boiler or fire up a boiler to turn a turbine. So the idea is you could make, just like with uranium, you can use thorium in a thorium fission fuel cycle to make electricity. Be awesome. The United States apparently has like a thousand years of thorium buried in the deserts in Nevada as a byproduct of our uranium mining, which is mostly done to fuel the uranium fuel cycle. But thorium is awesome. At least it has the potential to be. We know it works because in the 50s at Oak Ridge in Tennessee, the United States built the first two working prototype thorium reactors. I know one was at Oak Ridge. Not sure if they were both there. Anyway, we did it. We built them. And then we weren't interested in them, mostly because the byproduct out of that doesn't isn't explosive. It doesn't make a, a fun bomb thing. So there wasn't a lot of interest in that direction. Cold War more interest in putting forward the uranium reactors, which create plutonium as a byproduct, and uh, that is very explosive. So the thorium fuel cycle, really interesting for a number of reasons. I'm a big fan of it. One of those reasons is you can you can apparently feed other radioactive garbage into it, and it will consume that. It will eat that because of how its fuel cycle works. We're nowhere on that in the United States except for the efforts of people like Kirk, who are trying to raise private money, but, you know, private money for a brand-new nuclear technology or revitalized nuclear technology with new material science. It's expensive. However, India and China are both racing ahead, pouring billions into that. And I know that in September, China had the first pilot plant thorium reactor was supposed to fire up. I'm not really clear on how well that's going. I haven't been able to find a lot of good data, except they're doing it. Um, but I'd be fascinated to know how that's going, because we could actually, if, if we had thorium reactors we could actually, this is one of those times where I say, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. It really doesn't. If the United States took that $40 billion and poured that into thorium reactors right now, or didn't give a trillion to, say, Wall Street to bail out its sorry ass for making big mistakes again, and poured that trillion into thorium reactors, this is a different story. It's one I could believe in. But we're not doing that. And I can't, I don't have any good reason for that besides real incompetence or just a failure to understand or unserious leadership or worse, 
These are people who don't want the United States to succeed or Western Europe to succeed. Don't have a better answer for you than that, except uh, best case scenario is the United States is going to have to license that technology and buy it from China at some point in the future. And um, won't, won't that be fun? Uh, probably be very expensive at that stage. So at any rate, um, uh, so, so yeah, a lot of people are unclear on basic concepts at this point in time. We, we saw here, uh, Elon Musk, you know, the, the AP writes, Elon Musk boasts that he's acquiring Twitter to defend freedom of speech, but he has long used the platform to attack those who disagree with him. Uh, hey, AP, that's called free speech. That's how it works. People disagree with you, and you disagree with them, and you put it out in public freely. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm tying this sort of back into the whole energy story because this is the level of non-seriousness we have going on in the conversation right now. But we should be able to have a, a don't, don't you think we should be able to have a shared understanding of what free speech actually means? This isn't hard. Like all of a sudden, because AP can't manage to understand what free speech is and they've mangled it, some part of us goes, well, well I guess this is, I guess I didn't understand it. Or there, it's that creates that confusion. Like it's, it's like we're saying, well, Chris, you know, you, you claim that humans, you know, live on oxygen. I, I, I'm going to claim that they live on thorium and be like, what? You know, I thought we, I thought this was settled. Um, and so that brings us back to, to this concept here, which is, Western values will be sorely tested, right? Tested to the breaking point by 2030. And I'll tell you who's leading the charge in that in many cases would be with their fake fact checking and their inability to understand even basic concepts of things like free speech um, would be the AP blue check mark that they are over there on Twitter. Uh, the fact checking of the AP editorially has been horrendous through this whole COVID cycle. Horrendous. Almost that you could just take their fact check and take the opposite of what they determined it to be. And you got accidentally or non-randomly closer to the truth by a long shot. Uh, and, and that's, that's the nature of that particular story. So at any rate, um, so we haven't seen a lot of, uh, comparisons like this anymore. So remember back when, uh, I've seen a lot of these over time, you know, it's like, 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could solve world hunger, says director of UN Food Scarcity Organization. So somehow there's this idea that, that it should be up to the, to certain billionaires, and maybe it should be, which different argument, but we saw a lot of these these comments, and, and they were specifically mostly directed at Elon Musk. I, I rarely saw these talking about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or anything like that. Like, we saw these a lot. So there was some sort of a point being made. Um, I will say that I think the Babylon Bee has nailed it once again, uh, I'll let you read that because I know there's some sensitivity on this topic set here on this platform right now. But um, <laughs> this is it's just it's gotten it's gotten bizarre. It's gotten bizarre that um, we're at this stage where 40 billion goes like that for something. And this issue is not being taken care of or perhaps this one. Perhaps this one. You know, one of the biggest issues we have right now in the United States is farmers independently making the decision they can't afford fertilizer. I just bought fertilizer that for my little field, little six-acre field, was uh, a little over twice what it was last year. It's, it's very expensive. Um, at any rate, 
Look at the total size of the fertilizer market in the United States. And uh, here it was $23 billion in 2020, just a little over that, maybe call that $25 billion in 2021. And that $40 billion could have immediately done a huge amount of good within the United States towards food production, food yields, all of that. Nah, wasn't really part of the decision. It wasn't part of the conversation. I'm just weaving together these disparate elements here to just say we have very unserious people who don't seem to know how the world works. If you don't put fertilizer on spring wheat early enough on, you get a lower yield and a lower quality of yield of that stuff. It's not rocket science to figure that out. If you shame and belittle the oil industry and say that you're going to put price controls on their final product or you're going to you know cajole them into having to produce more one year but then tell them they're responsible for you know global climate change on the other without ever addressing consumer behaviors and as an interim step as if it was somehow entirely up to the oil industry as to what kind of decisions i made in terms of what i drove these sorts of unserious inabilities to connect reality with decisions and 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 priorities over here this is going to take us down. This, this, get, this gets dark. This really does. No, no question about it. This is the kind of thing where you have really inept, if not malicious or malignant uh, people out there who are in charge of the system, who either don't know what they're doing or don't care or are running some other plan. I don't care which direction they're coming at it from because the conclusion is always the same. We end up with an economic model that needs energy being starved of that energy. It could be starved for food energy. We're already starting to see huge things happen. Like, like check check this one out here. Let me move this over a little bit. Uh, this just happened today. Iran raised prices of food staples, uh, abruptly raising prices as much as 300% for a variety of staples like oil, chicken, milk, and eggs, which quite predictably leads to things like, well... Anger, civil unrest, things like that, the, a.k.a. the food riots, which we saw back in 2011, coming back in style right now. They're coming back in style in no small measure because farmers can't afford fertilizer. This chart doesn't show the, the impact of uh, utilization of fertilizer, which has gone down a lot, which is going to really impact food prices. Now, why didn't we have any political leadership in Europe or in the United States or per, perhaps a number of other countries saying, you know what? We should really help this situation out. We're going to subsidize enhanced manufacturing processes for ammonia, phosphate, potassium. Mm -mm. We're going to sanction the number one and the number two exporters, which is Russia and Belarus, of potassium, which you need as, a, as the NPK in fertilizer. That's the K. What about the phosphorus? Well, there's the whole story there. Nitrogen. Well, the plants had to shut down or they couldn't run because, you know, input feedstocks for natural gas too expensive fine but isn't there somebody serious somewhere who understands how important that is to your nation's security if not global security to not have hungry rioting people all over the place that that seems like a very simple that's a simple concept that is not hard but here we are and that's just a really sort of a, a, a very scary thing that I'm looking at right now because I think there's just not a lot of hope that we're going to get much of a conclusion of this that's going to be satisfactory or fun for a lot of people. Energy is the economy, period. And we can see this a number of ways. This is our primary source of energy, and this portion of it right here, which is the most important portion, the oil portion, 
is about to do this. And we know that because of where the United States is in its oil production curve. We know that because of where all the OPEC nations are in their production curves. We know that because of Russia and China's curves. We know that because of demand statistics. We know this. We know what's going to happen next. It'll be maybe a little bit bumpy. I might be a little bit wrong for a little while. It goes up for a little while. It goes down, all that stuff. Maybe, you know, roses and unicorns break out next week and Russia gets back to being able to turn its fields back on. Maybe. But even that doesn't do anything but get us a little bit more time. The primary question, which really I've never seen asked or answered or addressed in any serious way, is this. What do we do when... Not if, but when these energy resources dwindle out. They don't run away all at once, right? I'm not saying next Tuesday at 830, it's over, right? It, it could be many, many decades, but, but they no longer are reliably rising for decades. They are not going to reliably shrink for decades. Totally different environment. Shouldn't we have a conversation about that and ask a couple things? So when I was in a corporation, we would have strategy sessions. And strategy sessions were always kind of the same. Here's a strategy. They have these fancy, we had all these fancy ones we would use, but they always boiled down to the same thing. Where are you going? How are you going to get there? What's your vision? What are your resources? The vision is always the, you know, you can, well, we're going to go to Mars and we'll, we'll colonize the universe. That, that part, that part's always grandiose and it has to always be tempered by the resources of which there are never enough resources, resources being time and money and people, right? There were, there were never quite enough resources. So that was always the element of any strategy session was to balance what you want to do in a realistic way against the resources you actually had. And in this story, if we said, well, we would like our great grandchildren as yet unconceived to come into a world of abundance and life and opportunity. Today, we'd have to be making some very serious decisions about how we want to apportion that remaining balance of resource that we have. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying use it wisely. Let's not squander it, but we're busy squandering it. And here's what happens when you squander your primary resource, which is energy. You just do that. You tell yourself happy little fibs. You let the narrative police distract you with meaningless stuff, right? Oh, hey, look over here. Roe v. Wade. Oh, wait, Ukraine. Hold on. Double mask, right? This has been a never-ending series of distractions, which as engaging as they might be and as, and as important as they are to, to unravel, are not even remotely on the same priority list for me, is what are we going to do? Because we don't have a plan besides business as usual for how we're going to organize ourselves in a fundamental macro way around the energy story. It's a big deal. And we don't have an answer for it, which is why if we don't have an answer for it, you have to have an answer for that. This is going to have huge impacts on the future. It's why I do what I do at Peak Prosperity. We talk about resilience. We talk about being resilient along a bunch of dimensions, right? I've mentioned a few at the beginning of this show. I like to be resilient around my own food production but if I couldn't be, I'd be certainly resilient by knowing my local or closest food producers and I would be engaging with them because I think that's that's important. But you know what's just as important? Your mental clarity and your emotional resilience are going to be absolutely vital in this story. So please do what you can to not become distracted by all these distractions, which I know are just being chucked at us like like fastballs. You know, uh, I get it. Our spiritual strength and resilience, exceptionally important in this story. 
Our social capital, really important in this story. Who do we know? How well do we know them? What kind of arrangements do we have? What kind of agreements? How much trust do we have built up? That's actually probably one of the most critical things that, that can be worked on in this story. And so when I talk about resilience, sometimes people think I'm talking about water filters and dried food. I am, but that's just material capital. It's just one of eight forms of capital that are really important to have. And that's an easy one. You can solve that by buying a few things and you know, calling it a day for the most part. The rest of it is, do you have the skills to actually add value? into this next future? Do you know how to do things or do you just think you know how to do things? Do you have a plan for what you might do if, I don't know, YouTube wasn't there and you couldn't look up how to change oil on a Kubota tractor and you actually had to know how to do that or, or, or whatever the story is, knowing how to do things, the skills that you're carrying into this next part are really, really critical. So that's what we talk about at Peak Prosperity a lot is how to get there. And, you know, I go, I visit Peak Prosperity because of all the inspiring stories of the people who are there, the members who are uh, very actively engaged, many of them much further along in the resilience story than I am in terms of their all sorts of dimensions. So it's just a, it's a fab place and um, because of the people who inhabit it. And it's really important to me to, that you hear this and, and do something with that. So wherever you go to do that, that'd, that'd be great. What came up there? I missed it. I didn't see it out of the corner of my eye. Janet Partridge said, got my food growing. Chickens are laying. No mortgage. Yeah. Been listening to people like Dr. Chris for some time. Thanks, Chris. Well, thank you, Janet. And um, that's awesome that you have uh, those things in place. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that we all become our own subsistence farmers, you know, growing 100% of our calories. My model is, is that if you know how to grow, say, 3% of your calories, if that ever had to go to 100% for whatever reason, going from 3 to 100 is a totally different ball game than going from zero to 100. There's a whole lot in that first 3%. There's knowledge, soil building, seeds, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how much that, that's, the knowledge is very whoop, contained in that first few percent. And that, that's how that looks. So, uh, so, yeah, anything I can do to help you get busy on that. But right now, we're seeing... You know, the financial market's taken a hit. There's a whole story behind that. I'd have to unpack that for a while. But this energy story, this is the biggest deal. And I can't believe the G7 has just come out with a set of statements basically saying we're going to shun Russia, make them into a pariah state, teach them how, how bad they are, and we're just going to decide not to use their oil. And that's what we're going to do. Like, oh, yeah? Please inform us which section of the economy and maybe even which section of the population you consider expendable in that story, because that's actually what they're saying. And either they know that, which means they're evil because they're doing it on purpose, or they're ignorant to it, which means they really have no business being in those leadership positions at all. So, yeah, at any rate, that's that's um, Europe. I'm so sorry. You're going to have a tough winter next year, I think, at this pace. Um, so see where that goes. All right, any others that I should be looking at here today from our wonderful, amazing people who have been listening this whole time to that kind of long and convoluted, convoluted story of mine? But hey, thanks for listening. I, I mean, I just, yeah, I'm super happy to, to be able to share that. That's an example of the kind of thinking that I've been putting into this for 14 years now. That energy economy nexus, understanding of those two pieces come together, that's power. It gives you an insight into where things are going and why. 
and it helps to unravel what's happening geopolitically, financially, where things are going, what's going to be valuable in the future, what's not going to be valuable in the future. Um, that's, uh, yeah, reality. That's going to be the most important thing going forward. Hard assets, all of those things. So if we don't have any other comments here, if guys, you have anything for me up that's you want to bring up or should I just be, we're good. All right. Hey, thanks everybody for being part of this. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Let me know if, if you got something out of this. And by the way, come by peakprosperity.com. If you want to see part two of this, where I go into much more detail with Dr. Merrick about what's happening and what probably happened with that uh, hepatitis virus in the children, as well as talk about just kind of how urgent it is to get rolling on things today. And so for those of you who are already members, hey, see you over there. Thanks for listening. Everybody else will be back with you next time. Hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed uh, presenting here tonight and uh, be love being here with you. All right. See you next time.